Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April the 5th, 2016, and this is episode 1759 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday. This is a standalone show, and today's show is going to be about food storage for modern survival living. The reason we're uh, doing this topic today is I did a poll on Facebook and uh, asked people of three shows, which shows did you most want? And this one actually was the looser. Um, so it came in third place. So we did the other two shows, and now this Tuesday we're doing this one. And I'll be letting you know when we get started today that I'm starting a new policy of letting the audience select from various subjects to actually define, in most instances from now on, the subject matter of Tuesday shows, since they are the standalone show. Right now there's a poll in the forum. I'll tell you more about it in a bit. There's six choices, and the next three winners will go into uh, the next three shows for the rest of April. So you guys will be in charge. It's uh, another part of the, uh, the formatting change of the show where I'm trying to give you guys more of what you want by well asking you and listening to you. Today, though, we're going to talk about one of the fundamentals of modern survival philosophy, food storage. Food storage actually is something that at one time was simply something everyone did. Every home in America at one time seemed to have a root cellar full of canned goods. Today, though, food storage and the concept of survivalism or prepping is sensationalized and, well, it's largely misunderstood. Many tend to hear survivalist at once envision a guy sitting on a 10-year supply of military rations in a basement or a bunker somewhere, probably looking for black helicopters. And then this image is hyped by media who simply wish to sell a story, and worse, it's made up of journalists that live in the bubble of the government will fix our problems. The reality is the bunker approach of military rations is both inaccurate and, well, as you'll see today, it's completely impractical. To worsen matters as preparedness has become more of a hot industry, long-term food has become a product marketed largely on fear versus on the practical benefits that it actually offers. The reality is food storage doesn't even require specially packaged 25-year stable products, uh, though they can be useful in your food storage program. We'll talk about that today, too. The simple truth is uh, you know, if you have a 60- to 90-day supply of food in your home, You can help the average family deal with everyday occurrences and most disasters they might ever expect to impact. We're going to be talking about how to do just that today. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, get some historical context, as always, with our kind of uh, you know our history segment where Alex Shrugged has the year that was the episode for us at tspwiki.com. I have three for you today, and I'm going to read two because one is short and one is very short. Those are the ones I'm going to read. The first one I'm not going to read. It's called The Man Who Will End Slavery. His name is uh, Wilbur Foss. It will be changed to Wilbur Force, uh, the last name. And that's slavery in in England. Uh, so you might want to read that one. I also have the, A Theory of Electricity and Magnetism and Breaking News. Parents now love their children. This one's very short, but I could not not read this one to you today, because it does tell you how grateful we are to live in a time that we live in. For all the problems we have, listen to this. Parents of the 1750s are starting to love their children. Children are still dying left and right, but not in the numbers they used to. Thus, many parents, notably Abigail Adams, are now investing more emotion into their children rather than simple detachment waiting to see who will live and who will die. Usually a child that knows it is loved will have a different attitude toward the world than one that knows it is not. 
You know, I almost wonder, like, is it ever possible that parents would not love their children? And I wonder if in a time when half or more of all children that are born to you die, if a detachment attitude is a survival instinct. And uh, that it might have been very common that children maybe weren't really embraced as children until they were, you know, four or five years old and gonna make it. You can understand how that might happen, as twisted as it seems to us today. And it's not because of, you know, medicine and drugs and surgery that these kids are alive today. It's because today we have sanitation, we have clean water, we have abundant food. These are the number one things that have changed, that have increased the life expectancy uh, in total. Because all the ones and zeros came out. Women don't die in childbirth very often, and kids tend to live. That's what's changed. I broke this myth a long time ago when I went through and took 40 members of the Founding Fathers and put in their their date of death and came out with an average that was 72.1. And for white males today, it's by the CDC 72.8, average life expectancy. It's almost the same once you get out of the gate. Let me read the other one for you, though. A theory of electricity and magnetism. A very bright fellow named Franz is tutoring Catherine the Great Son Paul. He has also made the first attempt at applying mathematical principles to the phenomenon of electricity and magnetism. He imagines electricity to be like a fluid, but with very little mass. In essence, he is describing electrons. Another fellow in England is working on the same problem, coming up with math to handle these same issues and coming up with the same results. And these two fellows don't know each other at all. Franz will publish first and thus get credit for a good beginning. The other fellow, my take by Alex Shrug, the other fellow's name was Henry, Henry Cavendish. He was a shy man who liked to write but not publish. Thus, many of the experiments he ran before anyone else were not credited to him as being first. For example, he discovered something called inflammable air, but someone else reproduced his experiment and named it hydrogen. I suppose that's a better name than inflammable air. After he died, a fellow named Maxwell collected up all of Cavendish's papers and had them published. Maxwell became famous himself for Maxwell's equation, the freaking unified theory of electromagnetism. That is how you get electromagnets. But it implies a lot more in terms of high-energy physics and space-time continuum. Phasers on stun, Scotty. Um, I'll tell you, my take on this is something that I just said, and I find it coincidental that this showed up. That great ideas, when their time has come, seldom come from a single source. And generally, when an idea really is at its time, it's the time for it to be here, you see multiple people develop it independently almost exactly the same way. And it's one of the reasons that we might want to reevaluate the way we handle things like patents and trademarks. I'm just saying. My take by Jack Spearco. Next up, let's hear from our sponsors of the day before we get into the main part of the show. If you're like me, you're always seeking to learn more about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and personal liberty. Well, my go-to source of information for all of those things, for over two decades, has been Backwoods Home Magazine, with information on everything from food preservation to alternative energy to choosing the right firearm and more. You will find it all from some of the best people you will ever meet. Check them out at BackwoodsHome.com. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Cola. 
These are adaptable from zone 8 to zone 10. Medium-sized avocados weighing approximately 6 to 10 ounces and are egg-shaped. They have excellent rich flavor and are known to be heavy producers and require well-drained soil. Cold, hardy avocado trees are mature, have withstood temperatures as low as 15 to 18 degrees. We recommend covering the tree the first winter if temperatures drop below freezing. Once the tree has been in the ground for a year is well-rooted, it will begin to withstand the colder temperatures. The older the tree gets, the more cold-hardy it becomes. For those of you who live anywhere above Zone 8, we have Joey Avocado, which is a semi-dwarf variety that you can grow in a container and bring inside during the winter. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant more at Bob Wells Nursery. Remember, MSB members, you do get 10% off. And remember, right now, the MSB is on sale for $25 for your first year with discount code PLANT. If you've been thinking about joining, maybe that'll kick you off the fence. Anyway, let's get into it. So I want to start out with like the addressing the biggest problem that I think people run into when they try to talk to their friends or their family members about, hey, don't you think it would be a good idea if you had a little bit more than a thin pantry and you had some food stored up? People say, well, what are you afraid of? You're afraid the world's going to end, you know, you're an apocalyptic-minded person or something like that. I, I think that the, the first thing we need to understand about food storage, as I said during the intro segment, is it is something that everybody used to do. It is something that was normal. So let's just step back from the whole issue for just a second and say, if everybody used to do this, why why did they do it? And I think the first reason, and it's, it's a logical reason that most people would give, especially if they want to resist doing it today, is, well, they didn't have refrigeration. You didn't just, you know pop off to the store in, in five minutes in a car like we did, that it was it was required that you do it. And then, you know, cars and refrigeration and electricity came around, and those things are fairly reliable, so people don't need to do it anymore. Okay, hold on. Uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I, and my, my father grew up in, you know, the, the, the 50s and 60s, and in the 40s a little bit, too. Um, and... He told me that, you know, what I saw was basically the way it always was, that, you know, where I lived, everybody had a root cellar. Everybody had food stored down in the, in the, in the root cellar. Everybody hunted and fished and made different products out of the meats and put those away and gardened and went out and foraged on the mountain and, and did all of the mushroom collecting and did dehydrating mushrooms so that they would last. And everybody did this. You know, all the way up until the 80s. And I, I honestly haven't been back to that part of the world for a long time, so I don't know if it's as prevalent as it is. But based on what I see on Facebook, it's not. So I'm going to assume that there was a drastic fall-off in this type of living right around the 1980s when we got into the me generation, when my generation, Generation X, became successful, and we just kind of let it all go. Because we were all out making a life for ourselves, and it just seemed complicated. So let's wrap back that up then and ask ourselves, well, why did people do this in the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s? I think one reason is there was a little bit of scaredness in the world about nuclear war. And maybe there wouldn't be the end of the world nuclear war. Maybe there would be some kind of limited exchange, and that at least had a little bit of fear in people, but... I don't know. My grandparents never really talked about that much, especially on the, the, the Pennsylvania grandparents, right? Um, didn't really seem to come up very much. I think the biggest discussions that ever happened around it with us as kids was, 
in uh, I think it was '82 or '83 when uh, the day after came out. Uh, the two-part miniseries was on network television of a nuclear war. I mean, other than that, uh, by the '80s, we were kind of not really worried about it much, but we were still doing it. Maybe it was just still hanging on. I, I think people did it because it made sense. I mean, that's just all, all I see when I when I look back and think about the way that I grew up. You know, if my grandmother wanted, like, she looked in the refrigerator and somebody ate the last pickle, she'd say, go down the cellar and get a jar of pickles. Right? Well, what kind? Dill or bread? She called them bread and butter, the sweet ones. So, dill. Okay. Go down and get a bar. So we didn't have to go to the store. It was just there. The garden grew it. She canned it. Then it was there all the way to the next year when she did it again. There was usually a can or two of food left around right toward the end, and we ate it to get out of the way and free those cans up so they could be, or those jars up so they could be used for the next batch. So we had all this food that we didn't pay for. And it was always there, and it was always convenient. And I, I can't ever remember my grandmother saying something like, you know what, I'm out of sugar or flour or whatever. Go up to your aunts and see if they can loan us a couple cups. It was just there. I think food storage is just dramatically practical, just for convenience. It also has a lot of opportunity to save us money because if we buy in bulk, we can spend less. Uh, I've learned, you know, over the years that, for instance, I can go buy four-pound bags of fruit frozen at Costco, organic fruit frozen at Costco. And it'll cost me less than buying it in the small 11-ounce packages at like Albertsons to buy conventionally grown. So I can actually buy a higher quality food for less money, and then I can turn it into something like a jelly or a glaze or a mead. And that's just one example. When we start figuring out how to actually take the food that we bring into our home and do things with it to make it last longer, to package it in smaller units and make it storable, which is one fundamental of food storage we'll talk about today, it just gets dramatically convenient and it's a cost savings. And I also want you to think about there are things that make it difficult for us to leave our homes at times that are not catastrophic disasters, but something like an ice storm. Or something like that. And, you know, unless you live in the southernmost tips of Texas or, or, or Florida, maybe Arizona, New Mexico, uh, California, it's always a possibility. It really is. It certainly happens here. It, this winter was very mild, but the last two winters we had several times when it was not safe to leave the house for four to five days. And most people can, like, be okay for four to five days, but wouldn't it be better if you were happy? You're already stuck in the house, you know. If you can have a little aperitif with some limoncello, uh, you know, and uh, cook up some really great food and, and, and be able to cook even if the power's out, right? I mean, these are things that make your life better. So the convenience, the cost savings, the security, all of it, it just makes sense. Even if society never collapses, the zombies never march and eat brains, whatever it is that people think you're talking about. And I think this is the conversation that you have with your friends and family about food storage. And this is, you know, this is, hey, look, if you if you set up a food storage routine, when something goes on sale, you can take advantage of it and reduce your cost because you're going to eat it anyway. So that actually leads us to my first rule of food storage, and it's not really my rule. This is a saying, if you're a prepper, you've probably heard it for 20 years. Eat what you store and store what you eat. And as, as easy and simple as that sounds, I try to take it to a more structured level so that people can actually do it because you tell people that and then they don't really do it because they don't really think about what they eat that's why we have so many obese people in this country because people don't think about what they eat 
So my first part of that rule is keep a food journal. A food journal is a really complex thing. It's basically like a notebook that you can buy for less than a dollar that you throw on the countertop of your, of your kitchen. And you just write down every single thing you eat, your spouse eats, the kids eat, the dog eat, the cat eat, the fish eat, whatever. Okay, If you have a pet lizard, write his stuff down too. Snakes, write down mouse, ate one today, right? But mostly focus on you and your kids and your wife or your, or your husband if you're the woman doing this. And you just do that for about a month. And within two weeks, you, you're pretty well along. And all you're doing then is actually being honest with yourself about what you eat. And you may find yourself making healthier decisions because of this and thinking a little bit more about it, and that's a side benefit. But in the end, if you're going to eat Kraft macaroni and cheese five times a month, then you should probably store about 25 boxes of it because it'll last two to three years easy. And it's just there. Okay? See, it's that simple. Like, I'm not going to judge you because that's what you feed. You know, maybe you're broke. So maybe that's something that you're able to feed your kids. Though I'll tell you that you can buy the individual components that make them far more storable and make macaroni and cheese that your kids will love to eat for less money. You can make it out of real cheese as well. You can make it out of Velveeta, which is not the greatest thing in the world, but it's probably better than the powdered crap. But you can get good quality powdered cheese and long-term storables. We'll talk about how that all links back to this later. But in the end, at least start out with what you're going to buy anyway and what you're going to eat anyway. So when somebody says, well, you have a lot of this stuff, well, all I did was buy it now instead of later. That's it. Because they're going to eat all this stuff. See, and this is why we don't start with MREs. This is why we don't start with number 10 cans of, uh, of freeze-dried you know, beans or something. We start with what we eat. And then we take that and we use that to do what we call copy canning. And copy canning, just take copy iteming, right? But canning just sounds better. So after we've, we've completed that food journal for a while and we have identified, for instance, that yes, this family eats Kraft macaroni and cheese. And generally when mom goes to the store, she buys two packages of Kraft macaroni and cheese. Next week when she goes to the store, she buys four. That's the only thing different. And we pick one or two items at a time to begin building this up with, based on our budget. Maybe we can do six items at a time. It all depends on our budget. Some people have big budgets, some people have small budgets. And when we come home, we stack it just like it looks at the store. We put it in the pantry, and instead of it all being jumbled up, we have a line. Kraft macaroni and cheese in a line. And we, 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 we take the concept of fronting merchandise from the store to our home. When I was a kid, I worked in a grocery store. And, of course, people come by and pull stuff off of the shelf, and it creates a hole. So you reach back in, you pull the merchandise forward, and when it comes time to add new stuff before the old stuff runs out, you pull it all off the shelf, you stick it in the back, and you make sure the, the oldest stuff is in the front and the newest stuff is in the back. Okay? So we start practicing that in our home. And when we get a certain number, whatever we decide of Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, from doing this doubling up, we pause there. And now when we make the shopping list, all we do is go, we use two, two boxes since the last shopping trip. I'm just going to buy two more like I used to, but they just go in the back of the stack. And then I'm back to what I was doing always. I just have this redundancy. And I move on to something else. Let's say that, that the family uses a product like Wolf Chili. As crappy as it is nutritionally, it's probably one of the best things that comes out of a can in the world from a taste standpoint. So we even use wolf chili. We make queso with wolf chili. So we move on to wolf chili, and we repeat that process. And sooner or later, what happens is everything that's in that book, and this is what you need to do. When you use something more than once, put a star next to it. 
And if it is something that stores without being in the refrigerator, put a plus sign next to it. Those are your, those are your targets for this. Those are the things you really want to work on. And then all the start items that you can store in a freezer, that's your next. So you do, a, you know, like a star and I don't know, an A, right? So star A, you make your own code up. Star A means it's, it, it needs refrigeration, but it's not a refrigeration thing. It's a frozen thing. So it can sit in there for months. We start managing our freezer that same way. So then we get into some more expensive items like meats and such, but you get a good vacuum sealer. You make sure that you're storing meat well, and when there's a big cheap buy on meat available, you buy that meat and you stack up your New York strips or your ribeyes or what have you or your chicken or whatever it is. And by doing this, you start to build storage in multiple components. But what if the grid goes down? We'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. We're buying what we store, or we're buying what we eat, and we're storing what we eat. Okay? That's, that's what we're doing here. Okay? Um... Think with a meal mentality as well while you're doing this. Start asking yourself, okay, well, I'm buying these components to store really well. What do we eat them with? And if you eat them with things that are difficult to store, come up with substitutions that store well. So if you generally make something with fresh chicken or frozen chicken, see if you can make something similar using canned chicken or freeze-dried chicken. That doesn't mean you start eating it all the time, but try it. See if you like it. If you do, if it's passable, then you can take that storable component and occasionally use it. So we do this with canned chicken, for instance. And it, it doesn't make the best meals uh, of the general meals that we make, but it's passable. But it also is outstanding when you make something like you, you, you cook a whole chicken, you pretty much pick the to the bones, you throw the bones in a pot, you Boil it down, you make a stock, you had carrots and celery and parsley, and you got a little bit of chicken floating around there. Well, to keep your chicken being rotated, your canned chicken being rotated, you go get a can or two of that after it's cooked, because that stuff's already cooked and really, really soft, and you dump that into your chicken soup and stir it in. And then something like, if you do noodles, you can have noodles store for almost ever. So then we cook up a little bit of noodles separately and then add them to our soup instead of having to explode. right? So these are all ways to start thinking with that meal mentality. Store what the kids eat. Right. If, if you have kids that are picky eaters, store what they eat. Because in a tough situation, you want to make sure you have that stuff. And store pet food. You know, I said the snake, the lizard, and whatever. I mean, you can go too far with this. But your dogs, I mean, most people, their dogs or cats are like family. And you're better off storing dog food than having to take people food you store to give it to the dog when you really need it for people. Uh, and also make sure you have a surplus of feed for your livestock because there might be something you're really depending on long-term if you keep livestock. Rule two is take advantage of opportunity buys. And we kind of hit on this a little bit already, so I'll go fast. But see, here's the thing. Do you remember when oil went through the roof and all the airlines were losing money and freaking out and going, oh, we have to, and they, then they jacked up their prices and add baggage fees and stuff like that and said it's all because of oil. Then gas prices went back down and they kept their prices up and they didn't ever take away the baggage fees and everything. Remember the one airline, like, we don't care, was Southwest. Why did Southwest just rock through that thing? Because they're smart? Yeah. Because they're quirky? Yeah. But I'll tell you why they really did it. They, they're doing exactly what I said here. They take advantage of opportunity buys. Southwest Airlines saw the spike in oil coming, and it's been their custom. They bought fuel contracts for a year in advance before the price went up. They locked in their price. So when everybody else was spending lots of money on their fuel, Southwest was still spending a little bit of money on their fuel comparatively. And they're able to do that. You can do the same thing. You watch for sales. You use coupons. You pattern seasonal trends. 
These are so that means that like if stores routinely, you know, like Kroger has a thing called meat madness, right? Like there's a time of the year when that happens. Or there's also times of the year when large volumes of certain produce come into to, to the stores and they're dirt cheap and they're expensive the rest of the time. So you need to pattern that. And we'll get into how you can take some of the stuff that's not storable and make it storable in um, Rule 5. Okay, so we'll, we'll shelve that for now. But pattern those seasonal trends. And the biggest thing is simply understand. Understand what you're doing with opportunity buys. Grasp the concept that, yes, this is a smart business decision. I was one time at a supermarket, and we looked, and they had this bacon. And it was kind of nearing its expiration date, but bacon's, you know, even commercial bacon's pretty long-term storable stuff. And that date is kind of not really that important, especially if you, before it happens, pitch it in the freezer. And freezer really doesn't harm bacon at all. And they had bacon, 14-ounce packages of bacon on sale for $1.50 a package. And there's this lady, she's doing what I do. You flip the bacon over, you look for the ones with some meat in it instead of all fat. And she's pitching them into the cart. So I'm sitting there pitching them into the cart, too. So now we're racing each other who can find the, the best. And we're pitching, we're, we're kind of working together, too, because we're, like, pitching the fat, the ones that are all fat out of the way as we're doing it. And her husband says to her, Why are you getting so much bacon? And I just can't keep my mouth shut. I said, because when you can get bacon for a dollar a fifty a pack, you buy as much as you can get. And she looks at me and she goes, thank you. <laughs> and I think we came home with like 20 slabs of bacon for 35 bucks or something like that. I mean, it was, it, it was a good opportunity buy. Well, that's understanding that the opportunity is there. That just means because it's in your head that when I see this, I'm not going to go, oh, well, I'll buy four packs of that. If I have the space for it, if I have the use for it, if it's on my list of things I eat, I'm going to max it out. So rule three is to find local sources of food and partake of them. Buy from local producers. Um, a lot of people say it's, it's expensive to eat healthy. I found a local provider here that sells beef as a half or a quarter beef. Uh, Grass-fed, local beef, never fed grain, always on pasture, cryovac Delivered to the house for $7 a pound. Now, half of it's ground meat, but the other half of it's like sirloin, New York strip, fillets, okay? Really nice roast, stuff like that. Okay, I can't raise a cow and do all that work for myself and justify not buying from this guy. right? Because delivered for free, by the way. And all packaged individually, cryovacked, all I have to do is stack it into my... Freezer the day he shows up. That That is a fantastic thing that's local. And the only reason we know that that opportunity exists is because we looked for it. We looked to find somebody local, and we found a good financial incentive to buy as well. Can I get meat cheaper from the grocery store? Of course I can. Of course I can. I, I mean, ground meat, if you buy the cheapest, shittiest ground meat you can get, you can get that stuff dirt cheap. And so if we averaged everything out, I might be able to save a little bit of money on the top and buying all my meat from the grocery store. It won't be grass-fed. It won't be the healthiest product I can get, and I won't save that much money. If I'm going to buy it in quantity, by the time I buy enough and spend all the time, energy, and, and materials in packaging it for freezing, I'm going to be right back where I started. 
So find those local producers because a lot of times, since they're specialized in what they're doing, they actually can save you money or what they can do is for a very small premium give you an extreme premium product. And I'm not talking about a guy that we beat down on price or anything. I'm talking about this is published rates on his website. Remember I said pattern seasonal trends at the store? Well, pattern local seasonal opportunities. If you live in a place where in September there is just buttloads of butternut squash, that stuff will store for a year on a shelf, damn near a year. I stored one in a windowsill that came out of my garden I picked in August. Of, of the year that I, I put it on the shelf to the point where my wife's like, are you going to get rid of that thing? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I want to see how long it takes before it starts to go bad. It was June of the next year before like it started getting black spots on it and soft and what have you. And even then we cut it open and we still used it, right? We had like a couple bad spots to cut off and all like you do with a bad apple, it's just starting to go. But I mean, see how long that lasted? So check this out. You may find that a lot of producers have products like that, like a winter squash that's available right around Thanksgiving. okay? And they're selling it as an ornamental, and everybody wants to put one on a table and stuff. But you may find that like Black Friday, when everybody goes shopping for Christmas crap, um, those people are selling that shit for next to nothing. You might not find that. They might, they might wholesale out whatever doesn't sell by like you know a week before Thanksgiving. You've got to figure out for yourself, does that opportunity exist for you? But, I mean, organic butternut squash is like $3.99, $4.99 pound at the grocery store. I bet you can find, if you don't want to grow it yourself, somebody growing it locally to sell it to you for less than that. And it's storable. You don't have to do anything except learn how to use it. right? So that's another example of pattern seasonal trends, but for local. Um, next thing is hunting and fishing and foraging, wild edibles. This is something that some people use to justify something like buying a $35,000 Skeeter bass boat and saying, oh, see, I can fish and get free fish. You're not getting free fish, okay? You have to think smartly about how to hunt and fish. You know, paying $2,500 a year for a deer lease and coming home with three deer and getting maybe 150, 170 pounds of meat out of it, uh, that is not profitable. I don't fault you for it, but it's, it's a byproduct then. It's not a, a purposeful product. Now, like where I grew up in Pennsylvania, where there's tons of public land you could hunt, and basically your total expense was your license for, I think it was like 12 bucks a year back then, and uh, the one or two rounds that you actually fired to make sure your rifle was zeroed, and the one or two rounds you fired to take a couple deer, or an arrow or two that you were know, kind of messed up after you shot a deer with them, yeah, that was profitable, big time, big time. So you have to kind of evaluate those things, but if you can find a local place with good clean water where you can go fishing especially if it's a place where you can routinely catch edible fish using something like artificial lures or, or you can catch your own bait you have no money into. Uh, when we used to live down by Joe Pool Lake, I used to go fishing all the time. And I had a little boat um, that I think it had a three-and-a-half-gallon gas tank in it. I think I, you know, if I fished you know, four days a week, I might put fuel in it once a month. That was how little, a little five-horsepower Briggs & Stratton motor on it. And I usually motored you know, 150 yards from where I put in, and I had a $10 parking permit um, to be able to park at the park, and I'd go out and fish with slabs for white bass. And a limit on those was, like, I think 25. And I could usually catch a limit of them. And, uh, you know, I mean, you end up with 50 fillets, and you've got a couple bucks into it, and you had a good day on the lake. You take them home, you fillet them up. You, I mean, it's just, it's like printing money. 
And then what I would do is I would take them home and fillet them at home because it was it was tired at the end of the day and whatever. And I'd throw all the guts and stuff in a bag in the freezer. And then technically this is illegal because you're not supposed to have, you know, cleaned fish on your boat in Texas. But no one really gives a shit. So I would take that bag with me the next time I went fishing. And what I would do is I would go over to one of my honey holes for catfish and you have this big chunk of frozen fish and you just plunk it in it all. And since it's frozen, it's a big chunk of this stuff. It just sinks to the bottom. And it slowly melts at the bottom, and all the catfish come in. Then you go back to where you catch the sand bass. You catch your limit of those or until they slow down. And then you come over with a little tub of Danny King's punch bait that I think you got eight bucks into, and it'll last almost a whole season. And you start pulling catfish out. You can catch up with 15 catfish. That is making money fishing. Because if you look at the total amount of fish... And you go look at the price of buying fish that's nowhere near as good as what you just caught yourself, wild caught. You're talking a single trip, you might come home with $40 to $80 worth of finished fish product that you have 10 bucks into for that day. And you got to go fish. These are the types of things that make sense. Foraging. Mushrooms is one of the most high dollar foraging things you can find. There's always something dandelion, and you got to learn how to make these forageable things worth doing. A lot of times people say, well, dandelion's bitter. Not if it's grown in the shade. Not if it's blanched. I mean, if you have dandelion growing in your yard, you can forage your backyard. One of the cool things you can do with dandelion is when the new leaves start coming up and it's just starting to grow, go take a flower pot you know, with holes in it so a little bit of light gets in, or maybe like a strainer basket type thing, like for a pond basket, and put it over top of several of the dandelions. This will blanch it, and you'll end up with a, a lighter, you know, more like a, a whitish, greenish thing with less bitterness in it and young, tender greens. Like that's just one example of, of how you can transform something that's okay into something that's better. Lamb's quarters grow almost everywhere, and we could start creating foraging environments for ourselves in our backyards or in unused land. I mean. If you find a stand of lamb's quarters and go back in the fall, you can collect a gallon of seed like nothing. And if you take that to every place that would be hospitable to lamb's quarters and just start spreading it around that winter, I promise you when you go back in the, in the spring, you're going to have young lamb's quarters everywhere. So that's another, like you can create your own. This is what a lot of hunter-gatherer societies did. There are more horticultural societies. Right where I lived in Pennsylvania, we had blackberries, blueberries, wild strawberries. Every year, those three. And we organized community picks to go up and, and harvest them off the public grounds on the mountains. And then split them up. That's just another example of what you can do for foraging. And all of that makes sense. I mean, there's always something. It's up to you to find out what is available. Rule four. This is where I say, yes, use commercially prepared long-term storables as extenders. Um, like find meal ingredients and store those. So like I said that like we'll use canned chicken. Well, we also, I mean, chicken, I can make chili with chicken. I can, I can make tacos with chicken. I can, I mean, I can, I am a chicken master. I can, you, you give me chicken, even if it's little pieces of white meat breast, it's not the most flavorful stuff in the world. I'll give you something awesome. But we all have a finite amount of, of meat that we can store in the freezer. And in the refrigerator, it's even a shorter term period. So we don't really store a lot of like freeze dried vegetables and macro, you know, like uh, like goulash and like uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about, like the pre made meal stuff that comes in the number ten cans, like stroganoff and stuff like that. We focus on yes, it costs more money, but it's more high value and more nutrient dense. Things like cube chicken, cube beef, ground beef, 
pork sausage crumbles, things like that. We keep a, a good storage of that and the fruits because both of those, see, here's the thing, freeze-drying is the most expensive way and the best way to store food. It's much better than dehydrating. Dehydrating, when you rehydrate something, with a few exceptions, it's not the same. You can tell, oh, this was dehydrated. Food that's been freeze-dried, when it's rehydrated and served, it's almost in the same form. It's usually, like meats are really, really tender and things like that, but yet the texture is there, the taste is there. It doesn't taste like jerky, right? Um, freeze-dried vegetables, you know, those taste like fresh vegetables, Flash frozen vegetables taste like fresh vegetables. Generally speaking, there's a few exceptions, but generally speaking, a dehydrated vegetable, when it's rehydrated, tastes like a dehydrated vegetable, you rehydrate it. Not that they're not useful, right? And we'll talk about that in a bit, but they just don't have the same quality as freeze-dried. So it, 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 to me, since it's a premium method of storage, the, the best application is for our premium, most expensive foods that are the most difficult for us to store well in a grid-down situation or a long-term situation. So I focus mostly on meats and high-quality fruits like raspberries, strawberries, and things like that. Apples are another one. And while we, while we will dehydrate an apple because it's quite useful, a freeze-dried apple is more usable as something that's like uh, more like the actual fruit intended with something so it could be served more like that, more like a fresh product, if that makes sense. Another big thing that I, I suggest with your long-term storables when you start going to companies like our sponsors, Ready-Made Resources and Safecastle, buy a can of this and a can of that. Don't go buying, uh, don't go buy a pallet. I, I know both of them are like, oh man, I want to sell pallets of food. I'm sure they do, but if you ever buy a pallet, make sure you've eaten everything that's on that pallet before you buy it. Seriously, and, and, and I, I don't think that's the best allocation of your resources anyway. Remember, we don't operate from fear here. So what I mean by that is, okay, you, you look at all of the stuff that Mountain House, Providing Pantry, etc. makes, and you say, these three things seem pretty good. Well, buy a can of each. And then actually open them up and use them. And be like, okay, this, this gets an A+. So now that goes on your list for your goals for long-term storage. And you want to stock up cans of that. And you go, this, this is like a B. So that maybe you're going to do it, but it goes lower on your list. And you go, this is a D. Well, don't do that. Find more A's and B's. And actually be familiar with these things and how to use them. Um, if you're going to be doing that, I also recommend you learn about making meals in a jar. And I have a great prior podcast that I can direct you to uh, with a girl named Jennifer S. E-S-S. Uh, and I have a link in today's show notes to that edition. And I'll let you just listen to that if you want to learn more about it. But basically what you're doing is you're taking these long-term storable foods. You put them into a mason jar. And you kind of stack them up in layers. And then when it's time to make a meal, you just pull out a jar, add hot water, and you're there. Very convenient for on-the-go families, et cetera, like that. And at the same time, you're building up long-term storables. So that's another way to use those and for those to make sense. And don't go overboard on this stuff. Really, I mean, it, it's, it, it's really easy to go overboard with, with these things. Because in this whole category would also be things like, going to Sam's Club or, or to Costco and buying a big giant sack of rice and a big giant sack of beans and coming home and storing them in, in five-gallon buckets. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a huge store of carbohydrate, a huge store of energy, a huge store of food. It'll probably store longer than you will. You'll be dead. It'll still be usable, if not in the best. And it's easy. And I'll give you the easiest way to do it. You get a food-grade bucket. 
You store it in the dark so you don't worry about Mylar if you're going to do this. Now, you can use Mylar. You can add that. But seriously, a good food-grade bucket store in a dark uh, situation. Go to Walmart or, you know, uh, sporting goods stores, whatever, right after deer season's over. And what you'll see is the hand and foot warmers, the ones that are about, you know, the size of a bean bag, like you used to play with when you were a kid if you're my age. Do they have bean bags anymore? When I was a kid, we used to throw bean bags, play bean bags. We had bean bag games. I haven't seen a bean bag forever. Uh, but about the size of a small bean bag. And you open up that package, you take it out, you shake it up, and it gets really warm. And you put it in your gloves or you put it in your pocket. You keep your hands warm, your feet warm. And those things sell, you know, for, they're pretty cheap. But if you buy them right after hunting season when they're on clearance, you get like a three-pack of them for like a dollar. Well, you go buy those, and they're sealed in those little packs. You leave them sealed in there until you need them. And you take your beans and your, your rice or whatever dry good you're storing in your five-gallon bucket, and you fill that bucket up. You open one of those things, you throw it in there, and you close it. You just put in a giant O2 absorber for next to nothing. It's cheap. 30 cents a piece if you buy them on clearance. How do I know this? Okay, this is a Stephen Harris moment here, right? For those who know, Stephen Harris is our expert on energy and chemistry. Um, there is a fundamental reality to how this technology works, which is exactly the same technology that makes an O2 absorber work. And if you take a little O2 absorber out of its sealed container and hold on to it for a while in the open, it will get warm. Why? Inside there is nothing but little filings of iron. Little filings of iron. And an additional chemical, I can't remember what it's called, but what it causes to happen is it causes the iron to rust really, really fast. That's it. That's all, both, they're both the same. Why do they do this? Okay, let's go to food storage. When iron rusts, what do we call it? Iron, come on, Jeopardy music, you need Jeopardy music? Iron oxide. Okay, so that means the iron oxidizes and rusts. What must iron do to oxidize? It must bind up and bond with oxygen. So that's how it works. It's exposed to oxygen. It rusts really fast. It pulls all of the oxygen out of the container until either it can't rust anymore, and that's why you need to make sure you use one large enough, or there's none left, and then it ceases to oxidize. This is why they can put it in a sealed container, and you can open it and then use it. If it just rusted without oxygen, well, it would be impossible, but it would be unusable. So that's why they get hot for a while and they stop. They've taken up as much oxygen as the, the iron's capable of. It's rusted to its full potential. It's used up all of the adjunctive chemical that causes it to rust more rapidly, and it's done. Well, there's another byproduct of this. When that happens really rapidly, like it's not in a sealed container, it's out in the open, and it's really going as fast as it can, that oxidation process generates heat. So you now can spend very little money buying up all the surplus hand warmers at the end of hunting season when that comes around, or you can look for bulk buys on cases of them, whatever, and you'll have all of the O2 absorbers you'll need for bulk storage at all times for a cheap price, and you'll get them to do so much more work. Because if you look at even a large O2 absorber compared to a hand warmer, there's just a lot more horsepower there to seal up those buckets. So there you go on that. But don't go overboard on it. Right? I mean, if you put away four or five buckets of rice and beans each, uh, you can feed your neighbors for a long time on that. You can feed yourself for a long time on that. It can be used with other things. It's really easy to fill up a basement with that stuff. And the zombie apocalypse where we're all going to be, you know, guarding our little pile of rice with an AR-15 is probably not coming. 
It's the least likely scenario. We prepare for what's most likely to occur first. So having that additional storage for some kind of major catastrophe to help your neighbors and friends out, that makes sense. All right, next, become a producer of food and or storables. We've had little little bits of that all the way through here, but now we're going to talk about it from a more concerted effort. This is how we put this holistic solution together, right? So gardens are great, but perennials are even better. Or no maintenance annuals. Like we talked about Jerusalem artichokes yesterday. You can put in one bed, shove a bunch of Jerusalem artichoke tubers in there, little pieces of them, mulch it, make sure it doesn't dry out. That's the sum total of your effort, okay? Because you will not have to eat it. Because once it fills up with plants, it's not going to have a weed problem. It's just not. You can probably chunk a couple handfuls of dried beans in there and water it really good until they get started, and they'll climb up the, the, the plants like a half a Three Sisters garden, and that's about all that could survive in there. Your, it, would, it, will, it, will, it will crowd out your squash if you try to do a full Three Sisters with it. And at the end of the season, you pull it up, and you get the tubers, and it's edible. And you can, through your winter, just cut it all down, mulch it, and take only what you need as you need it, and there'll be plenty left in there to regrow next year. You'll never have to plant them again. And all you'll have to do is, when they start to spread past the bed you want them in, in that spring, when they get up to about 12 to 14 inches tall, the ones that are kind of, you know, breaking the perimeter, just pull them out of the ground and throw them on the ground and let them die. Because when you pull them up at that point, when you pull the tuber out, it's hollow. It's used up all its energy. If you pull them when they're really little, you little little pieces of tuber and they keep coming back. If you wait too long, then you can have a problem with them. But they're not the invasive nightmare people say they are. That's one example of an annual that you can grow like a perennial. Sweet potatoes are another one real simple to do, and you got greens coming off them. So now you've got like two plants right there that you have a carbohydrate yield and a green yield off one of them. And if you put beans in with the Jerusalem artichoke, then you've got you just do a dried bean. But you don't even you don't even worry about them. And at the end of the season, when all the bean pods are dry, you just pull them off as you cut down your your uh, your Jerusalem artichoke, and you just crush the pods and throw them all into a bucket, and then you just kind of sift them, and then you just basically do it like wheat. You just kind of pick them up and let it let it fly in the wind, and all your stuff goes away. You got a big bucket full of dried beans at the end of it for almost no work. These are ways that you can start producing food without being a gardener. Though I think gardens are great. Planting, you know, fruit trees, nut trees, etc. Another example of just having supermarket production in your backyard. Ten fruit trees can produce an awful lot of fruit for a single family, and even on a small yard, you can do that. You know, one of the choices in the um, the little poll we have is small scale food forestry for the next three weeks. It's up to you guys. I'll talk more about that poll in a bit and how you can participate in it. But that's just an example. Small livestock is a great option. Quail, probably the number one way to produce high-quality protein you can do at a small scale. A small quail tractor, a stack system in a garage, whatever. Um, you can, it's easy to store food for them. They don't eat that much food. A quail will eat about two pounds of food a month, which means if you're keeping, you know, let's say 50, uh, 25 quail, uh, three 50-pound bags is 90 days' worth of feed for them. I mean, that's... That, that's a lot of eggs, too, by the way. It's 25 quail will give you, if you keep the lighting right, about 25 eggs a day if they're all girls. Even if they're just, like, if you keep five males so you can do your own reproduction, that's 20 quail eggs a day. Yeah, that's 140 a week. 
you could sell the surplus and pay for all the feed. I'm, I'm just saying. Like, very few people would actually use 140 quail eggs a week. That's one example. Rabbits are another great example. Small-scale uh, aquaculture or aquaponics is another. Uh, but even just a couple stock tanks or a couple IBCs, growing your own fish, growing some duckweed to feed them with, you can produce you know, a, a meal or two a week of fish. These are all ways that you can do that. They can get specialized, so we won't go deep into them today. Um, but really, like the number one thing you can do in this regard has nothing to do with growing you know, plants or managing animals or something. It's learning storage techniques. Become a producer of the storable product. So it's not just a producer of the food itself, but a storable product. Flash freezing. So now we start combining these things. So now we identify local trend. Farmers markets in this area are glut full of, let's say, green beans at a particular time. Easy crop to grow. Everybody grows it. That's why there ends up being a glut in them. So we go down to our local farmers market during that trend, and we find everybody selling green beans, and we find the best deal, and we buy not a pound. We buy 20 pounds of them. We bring them home, we get either our steamer out or we get a big pot with a basket, and we steam them for a couple of minutes until they turn bright green. And this is after we've chopped them up, and we package them in half pound, one pound, whatever works for you as a single serving size bags, and then we put them in the freezer. And we have a product that will taste very, very much like a fresh green bean. If we dehydrate, I've talked about dehydrating vegetables, if we dehydrate a green bean and rehydrate it, we better be making soup and it still won't be that great. It's one of those items that just doesn't dehydrate well. So, you know, broccoli is another one. You can do dehydrated broccoli. It's fine for casseroles, maybe soups and small pieces or whatever. Broccoli cheese soup works that way. But really, broccoli is much better to flash freeze. So all flash freezing is, I talked about you can either boil or steam, but it's a partial cooking of the vegetable. And then immediately freezing it. And there's there's other ways to do this so that it's more convenient for you. So we'll go back to our green beans. Let's say you don't want to have tons and tons of bags. You want a couple big bags of green beans. You want to like the store, right? You want to be able to go in, open the bag, look in there, grab a handful of them, and pull them out. Okay, makes sense. You should be able to do that. The stores do that. Well, they freeze them and then package them. You can do the same thing. You can get some cookie sheets or, or baking sheets. You put down some uh, wax paper on them. When you're done blanching them, you spread them out so they don't touch each other's single stack. Throw them in your freezer. Wait about 30 minutes, and they'll freeze. Then package them. You can even vacuum seal. So you throw all that in a vacuum seal bag, especially they make vacuum seal bags that have a Ziploc. Okay, so you vacuum seal them, uh, and then you seal on the outside of the Ziploc, and you put those away. And what you need to start using them, you pull one out, you cut it open, that breaks the seal, but then you ziplock it and just push the air out until it's gone, and then you take the next one and so on. This is just one method. Dehydrating, you might think I'm not hip on it because of all the things I just said. There's things it's great for. Peppers, uh, onions, carrots, celery, for stir-frying, cooking and things like that, for seasoning, for making mirepoix, amazing. I'm still using jalapeno peppers. Let me get this. I am still using jalapeno peppers that I grew in Arkansas. I moved here over three years ago now. The, the year that we had the big harvest was the year before we moved. So now we're talking five-year-old dehydrated jalapenos, and every once in a while I need something to cook with, and I look in my cupboard, and my little plastic thing with a screw-top lid is empty, and I go grab a jar, pop it open, and those peppers are still great. 
I make amazing jalapeno powder with those. Um, dehydrated onions are something I buy versus make, but if you want to make them, go for it. They are amazing for cooking with. So there's a lot of things we can do with dehydrating. Apples are actually great for dehydrating. You make really great apple pie with dehydrated apples. You can dehydrate eggs. You can dehydrate eggs. Uh, you basically scramble eggs and then you dehydrate them. There's a lot of different things you can do. You can make jerky with dehydration, beef jerky. Then you can make my favorite thing with a method of dehydration that doesn't need a dehydrator called biltong. Biltong is something every single person should experience in their life. And there's a link today in a video series where I show you how to make it. But basically, what you do is you take red meat, like beef or deer or bison or something like that, and you coat it with apple cider vinegar, and then you coat it with salt and black pepper and coriander. And you can do other flavors and things. You can do bits of hot pepper or whatever, but that's the basic traditional recipe. You let it sit like that in a refrigerator overnight, and then you hang it up and you let it dry. You don't need a biltong box. You don't need it. Do not use a dehydrator. In my video, you will see a dehydrator messes it up. It's, it, it works too fast, and it dries it out too much. It doesn't do it right. It doesn't cure it. It dries it. Okay? Um, the only reason you need to do anything other than just hang it up is if you're in a humid climate or a humid time of the year. This was traditionally made in the bush in South Africa by the Dutch. You do it in the dry season when it's really, really dry out. You hang it up in the shade, and you cut the meat thick. That's a big thing, not thin like jerky. And you let it basically a dry pickling is what you're doing. Again, watch the video to learn more. But if you have humidity, all you need to do is wherever you hang it up, get a simple fan, put it on low, point the fan at it. And I don't mean right up against it. I mean just so there's air moving across it, and then just let it be. I make it in my office. I have it hanging from one wall to the other, and the dogs just walk in and look at it like, you bastard, I can't reach that. I want that so bad. And if you try Biltong, you'll love it. There's a pretty picture of Biltong uh, in the post today for the show notes, but it's not my Biltong. It's just I really like that picture. So, Because it shows you that it doesn't have to be completely, totally killed. Like it's a little bit rare in the middle. And it's sliced nice and thin, even though the pieces are big and thick. This is the way to enjoy your Biltong. Stuff like this. Okay, One of the greatest charcuterie things in the world, and it's not even in any of the menus. It should be. Biltong will become a passion if you let it. But that's part of becoming a producer is learning how to make things. Smoking, canning, making confit. Confit is where we take something like duck and we salt it and we let it sit overnight. And then we slow cook it in its own fat. So we reserve the fat from the whole duck and we put it back over the leg quarters. This is traditional duck confit from uh, the French. And then once that's done... Of course, if we put that in the refrigerator, that fat will stand up and it will become hard. And it can keep in the refrigerator for over a month that way. Where if you just had a piece of cooked duck laying in the refrigerator, it would be pretty rank after a month. Because it's in that environment. So that's using refrigeration. But, you know, French housewives would use that down in the root cellar and have confit duck down there. So you, you slaughter your ducks. You take all of the skin off the back and what have you and you render your fat. You use your breasts for your immediate meals. You take your leg quarters, you confit them, and they store. You can confit anything. You can confit pork. You can confit chicken. And you can use chicken fat. You can use lard. I mean, there's all different ways to do this. You know, you just do some looking up. And dry canning. I do jars with a thing called a vacuum canner. I'll have a link to about that today in the show notes. But basically, I put dry, storable goods that store well in a, in a, in a, in a vacuum canning situation into a standard mason jar. 
put a lid on there, turn the ring until it's tight, and then back it off a quarter turn, and stick it in a modified pressure cooker is what it is. I use a vacuum pump uh, like you use to work on an HVAC system, and that pumps it down to like outer space pressures, and then there's a valve you open, and that rapidly lets air back in, and the jars just seal up, and those things will, do you know those uh, peppers I was talking about? They're in jars like that. So we talked about yesterday, I talked about dehydrating lemons. That's another thing that you could do. Anything that's really a dry good. Nuts store well this way. Nothing wet. You know, no marshmallows, no gummy bears, but it is fun to do with your kids. Put some marshmallows into a jar and then vacuum seal the jar. Um, things like the vacuum, uh, I can't think of what it's called, but like the vacuum sealers, um, what's the real pop? The Food Saver Plus. I have a really good commercial grade vacuum sealer from Cabela's, but even like the, the, the Food Saver Pluses and whatever, they have these little attachments that will vacuum seal individual jars. You can use those. I mean, I can just do, you know, like, I think it's like dozen or so jars fit in there in one shot and they're done. So it's about a volume thing, but, you know, e either way, that's another thing to do. Uh, your meals in a jar, you could certainly put them away that way. And then producing storables from other foods is your silver bullet. It really is. This is what lets you enhance your food storage without spending tons of money, without going somewhere else. To actually be able to go out and select opportunity buys and buy food dirt cheap and then make it storable. And in many instances, for many busy people, you know, it's easy to find three or four hours on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon to set aside a few times a year to do stuff like this. It might be a lot harder for many of you to dedicate the time to growing a garden or something like that. So you let somebody else do the work of the production, but you do the work of the storage. Because most gardeners, if you're good, you have to end up doing these things anyway, right? Or most... Uh, livestock producers, etc. At some point, you have to put some of this stuff up. Become a great cook as well. Stretch with others, consider waste. Uh, the last time I butchered quail, <clears throat> I took the hearts and the livers, and I put a little salt on them, and I dredged them in a little bit of flour, just a little bit, and then I sautéed them in butter. And they were fantastic. Now, most people just throw that away. And I'm not a liver guy. I'm not the guy that you see ordering, you know, liver and onions at a restaurant or something like that. But fresh and done that way, it's amazing. Start learning what our grandparents knew. Some of the best pieces of meat are considered junk or thrown away. Like chuck eye. Chuck eye is basically ribeye when you come too far up the neck to call it ribeye anymore. And they're not as cheap as they used to be, but some places it still sells it real cheap. And it's one of those things they call a butcher's cut. The butcher would often take that at cost to himself because it was such a good piece of meat and he couldn't get much money for it. Um, hanger steaks are another one that have gotten really expensive, but uh, really one of the you know just premium pieces of meat. Hanger steak is basically the piece of the diaphragm from the, the cow. It's really, really, like when you're doing a deer, you cut that and it's really, really thin. And a, a steer, it's a much larger piece of meat. Uh, that's another example of a premium piece of meat. And then learning how to cook it and make it great. Or learn how to cook things that are considered low-end products and make them taste great. Like I talked about salted steaks. So you can take what normally would be like a tough cut of steak. Let's say like a London broil. A lot of times that stuff's on sale. Super cheap. But it's really kind of a tough cut of meat. All you do to do salted steak, and this is so simple. You wonder why we're not teaching kids in school to do this. You take salt, like a coarse salt. You don't want to use a fine salt for this because it will get too much absorption into the meat, like a sea salt or a coarse salt. You just cover the meat, and you kind of push it into the meat just a little bit, just enough so you can flip it without it all falling off. Okay, And then you cover the other side, 
and then you age it at, fifth, uh, at one hour per inch. So if it's a half-inch piece of meat, then you would age it for 30 minutes. If it's an inch-and-a-half piece of meat, you would age it for an hour and a half. If it's an inch-and-a-quarter, one hour, 15 minutes. An inch, one hour, you get it. And then wash it off. Season it as you like, though you don't need salt at that point. Cook that on the grill. It will be fantastic. Just the feeling of the meat will be different. It'll pull all the excess blood out. It'll cook beautifully. It'll come out super tender. It's an amazing way to cook, and that's just learning a technique. And that enables you to start using less expensive foods, which gives you more money for everything else in your life. Right? That's huge. And rule six that you kind of should have gotten through this whole thing, seek a holistic solution. You know, none of this, none of these rules stand alone. None of these things work really good by themselves. So just buy what you store and store what you eat. If you don't learn how to make meals out of that, combine it with other things. You know, you can only store so much fresh meat, for instance, or fresh vegetables. So learning how to make storables, it all fits together. A formula is always more than the sum of its parts, too, guys. I mean... Each one of these techniques alone is useful, and maybe two of them together are powerful, but when you take all of them together, you start to build a really resilient kitchen, a really resilient pantry, and a really resilient life. And you actually start to save a lot of money and eat better quality food. And take your time and ease into this way of living. Those of you that are new to this and are tuning in you know, to one of your first shows and are thinking, man, it sounds like a lot of work, it isn't, but it is. It is when you haven't done any of it yet. It is when you're trying to do it all at once. It is when you don't take this formulaic approach and basically follow these rules in order, the way that I gave them to you today, and ease your life into it. It's a lot like working out. If you haven't worked out for years, uh, you haven't run or hiked or whatever, you know, played sports or whatever it is, the first day that you decide to go do it, it's so hard. And you know what's even harder than the first day? Like the fifth day. When you're sore and you're tired and you just want to skip it and it just seems like a lot of work. But if you do it for a couple months, then it just becomes part of your life. Oh, I go for a walk every you know Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday in the park or whatever it is, and it gets really easy. Like you would actually, it would actually be a, a, it's something you'd give up, right? So it seemed hard, and it was because you needed momentum. But once you have the momentum, it's actually more difficult to take it away than to keep it. That's how this works in your life if you do it right. That's why I present it to you this way. And what I want to finish up with is how storing food empowers you to live a better life. I mean, my show slogan is like the worst and best slogan I've ever created. It's terrible because it's long and clunky and nobody ever says it right, right? But it's, it's, it's great because it's something that's universally, uh, has a universal appeal to people. And it really explains why you would prep in the first place, helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And so living a better life is what this is all about. Now think about what we did today. We cut your bill. We made your life more organized. We developed skills. We're putting better nutritional food into your, your body, into your family's body. We're giving you more resilience. You're better able to stand through a job loss or a storm. I mean, what is the downside? What is the, is there any downside into any of the things that I talked about today? About the only downside you come up with is, well, you said to do this with that. I don't like that taste, right? I don't want to smoke food. I don't like smoked food. Well, then don't do that. You know, just in the multiple storage techniques, I gave you flash freezing, dehydrating, jerky, built on canning, smoking, comfrey, and dry canning. That's eight methods. Pick three you like, right? There's no downside here. You're not buying anything you wouldn't buy anyway. 
You're probably paying less for the total, even if you're paying more at any individual point. Your life's better. Your life's better. That's what prepping's all about, guys. It's about a better life. And food storage is one of the most fundamental ways we can begin that transition into a better life because, you know, most, most guys, especially getting a prepping, I want to get a gun. I want a carry gun. I want AR-15. I want deer rifle. I want pig rifle. I want a tactical gun. Well, that's your AR-15. No, I want another tactical rifle. I want to, uh, I, I want to go get my class three stamp, get fully automatic. I want a suppressor. Okay, great. I'm, I love all those stuff. We talk about all that stuff, but the reality is I've been shot at once in my life. Once in my life in Honduras. I didn't like it. Hope it never happens again, but I'm in my forties and I've been shot at one time. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I have eaten. It, with some notable, you know, some few exceptions with fasting and stuff, almost every day of my life, and I plan on doing that for the rest of my life. And if I go long enough without food, I'm going to die. So it's fundamental to who we are. Food. If you also think about, like, it's just it's part of our culture and every culture. What do you do when somebody you're really looking forward to visiting your home comes to your home? I bet you plan a meal. You either cook for them, or you take them to a favorite place, and it's a social thing. It's intrinsic to who we are. So it's a great place to start. And because if you, you know, if you're one of these people like, I really want to get my aunt, my uncle, my brother, my cousin, my college, my, 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 my father's cousin's college former roommate, right? Some of you know where that's from. By the way, they're coming back with a sequel, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's find that real quick. At last, we meet for the first time, for the last time. Before you die, there is something you should know about us, Lone Star. What? I am your father's, brother's, nephew's, cousin's former roommate. What's that make us? Absolutely nothing. Which is what you are about to become. Just trying to give you some, you know, humor and variety thrown in. But I mean, seriously, no matter who it is that you're trying to convince that maybe they should take preparedness as part of their life, the food's one of the best ways to do it. Imagine that you have someone come over to your home and you put out a plate, and on that plate it's like a little charcuterie plate. There's some bacon, there's some smoked bacon, there's some jalapeno bacon. Cook just enough to where they start to crisp big, thick pieces. Uh, a little bit of homemade ham. I went and gave it away, didn't I? A little homemade ham, little maybe a little serrano, smoked serrano pepper on that, and some biltong. And hell, you know what? Put next to a little bit of yogurt cheese. We'll talk about that in a future episode, okay? But just look up yogurt cheese or lebna. And uh, a couple little pieces of bread or something to go along with that. Maybe a couple pieces of fruit from the garden. That's your appetizer. You put that out. And then you, you, you make an amazing meal. You do... Uh, a lightly smoked, cooked-over charcoal London broil that's moist and tender, and it, it tastes like a high-end steak. And you have a little bit of, uh, as an aperitif, right? You know, after your meal, instead of a dessert, like a cake or whatever, serve a little bit of ice-cold limoncello. And uh, then maybe go out, sit out back, and have, like, a, a wild black cherry mead. And the person's like, man, thank you. This is the most amazing meal. And you go, yeah, I had about 15 bucks into that. 
you're going to say, how the hell did you do that? Well, I did this, I make that, I harvest this here, and then we make our own bacon. I go down and buy whole pork bellies and make my own bacon, and that's really easy. You basically put salt on meat and throw it in the refrigerator, and that's how we make all our bacon now, and it comes out so much better than the stuff from the store. And, and you know what they're going to say? How do you do all that? Well, let me show you. Okay, you've just started them down the path of preparedness. You haven't even used the word. They're not calling you a crazy survivalist. You don't have to explain that you're not part of doomsday preppers. All you've do, done is introduce them into a different way of addressing one of your your primary survival needs, which is food. And it's so universal, almost everybody's open to it if we present it that way. So there you go. Um, with that, we're ready to wrap up the show. I've got an interesting song for you today that I'll, I'll hold back on for just a minute and, uh, and, and giving you that. I want to talk to you about a few other things. Number one, MSB, if you love the show and you want us to be around forever, do consider becoming a member. You can just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And uh, if you do that, it'd be a great way you can help support the show. And it's $50 a year, which is 18.3 cents an episode. But right now you can get it for 9.125 cents an episode, I think is what it would come out to, because I have it on sale for 25 bucks. Just use the discount code PLANT when you sign up. And if you want to use the, the form that you can download on the website to sign up with that, you just write it on the form. There's a place for it. Again, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, scroll to the bottom of sign up. If you want to pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin button's not working right. Email me and I'll tell you how to do it. I'll, I'll send you and I'll just ask you for what your username and you want on the account and what have you, and I'll send you an address to send Bitcoin to. Everybody else on PayPal, just use the code Plant when you sign up and you'll get that great price. Uh, next up, our TSP Business Directory uh, featured member of the day. It's called Two Chicks Meat and Poultry. And Two Chicks Meat and Poultry provides local pasture-raised, non-GMO, non-soy chicken to the central Texas market. There'll be a link where you can check them out in today's show notes. Remember, you can always find cool people to do business with or be found by cool people who want to do business with you at tspbiz.com. tspbiz.com will take you to the business directory that's at the survivalpodcast.com. So that's really easy to find now. And another way you can support the show, and I mean it takes no real effort from you, uh, if you go to tspaz.com, you'll go to our affiliate link for Amazon.com. So whenever you're shopping on Amazon, if you'd like to help us with the work we do, you can just go to tspaz.com, which, by the way, it's a shorter URL than Amazon.com. How about that? Bookmark it in your smartphone or device or what have you, and uh, we'd really appreciate that. Finishing up today, I wanted to introduce you to something. So yesterday I played 2525, which is kind of a dystopian look at the future. Um, and man, I had a lot of great feedback from folks about that one that it, that it heard it and remembered it from the past. And a lot of people were like, man, I never even knew that song existed. Um, and I promised something more lighthearted and fun today. And what I'm going to try to do is actually give you something beautiful today. Um, this is, I guarantee you, I've never played anything like this. I guess I played some classical music due to one of the history segments. This is what you would call modern classical music. But this is by a person named Hillary that I don't hate, Hillary Stagg. It's actually a guy that was named Hillary. I say was because he actually uh, passed away just a few years ago. And you may have heard this or some of his other music. I, I would have never known who he was other than this was something that I found as a music that I found really relaxing when I was uh, still kind of getting back to normal from being in the military for three years. And uh, instrumental music, different things like that I would listen to just to chill out, maybe have a beer and just sit in the woods or something like that or on the lake. And uh, I found this at a store that's now out of business called Natural Wonders. Um, and the guy's name, again, is Hillary Stagg. 
And this particular song I'm going to play for you is called Timeless Ways. Timeless Ways. It's uh, really, a, I think, one of his better pieces. And I picked this one because it may be one that you'll go, I have heard that before. I've heard it a lot on like network television stories where you know they show a girl riding a horse or something when they're telling the story of her life and how she got hurt and recovered or or you know something like that. They're trying to create an idyllic situation. But Hillary played a thing called the electric harp, and it is fascinatingly amazing music. And be careful if you're driving and you're tired. You might want to pause this one and listen to it when you're home. It's the kind of thing you can fall asleep to. Uh, but it is hauntingly beautiful. Kind of something to think about as you're listening to this, except with a bit of percussion here and there, almost every note you'll hear is one person, one instrument. Pretty amazing what a person can do when they when they actually master a craft. And you might be thinking, you know, what is this kind of music you know doing on something like a survival podcast? Shouldn't it be like playing some kind of like freaking Mad Max sounding soundtrack or something like that? Well, you know, I I I, I do kind of minimize the potential for like the zombie apocalypse or something like that. And I think that makes sense to do that. But I do feel like we have a lot of our culture and a lot of our society and a lot of knowledge slipping away in a way where people just don't really seem to care about preserving things anymore. And it makes me think of the movie Harrison Bergeron, where the guy that's in charge of the whole kind of shadow ops thing has young Harrison sitting in front of him. And Harrison says, you know, I understand we have to make everybody equal. And for those that don't know, it's a story about these people wear these bands around their heads, and it basically handicaps people. So everybody's about, oh, as is, is, is bright as your average idiot is today. Your average idiot level has become the acceptable level for everybody to, to, to perform at. And then there's this shadow group of people that, that kind of make sure everything doesn't fall apart, but they don't even run the government. The government's run by people picked out of the phone book, for instance. And... Um, they they you know they they're their people are punished for like a parking ticket by being shot by a firing squad in this dystopian that's based on uh Kurt Vonnegut's short story called Harrison Bergeron. It's extrapolated way out from there. This movie that was on Showtime, I think, in the mid or late nineties. Well, in their discussion about all the bad things of this, uh, the guy that's kind of running things puts this piece on and it's either Mozart or Beethoven or something like that and he says you know every time one of us comes into this group we take an oath to not have children we're the people that can't be suppressed by the band and we're the people that you know keep everything running we produce television that controls everybody's minds and things like that and to make everything safe for everyone to make everybody equal you know, we have to do this and he puts on this music and he says and every time I listen to this I think how awful it is that it will never be created again. And I find that disturbing. I also find it interesting that they've preserved it, that they're listening to it, that it was some piece of society they wanted to save. Well, I think when we look around, some of the wonderful things that we've done in the, the, the recent past, you know, Hillary's only been gone, I guess, for four or five years. This is a modern composer. One of the kind of things I'd like to preserve for the future so that when people look back at all the screwed up stuff they, that we did, they can see that we did some really amazing creative things too. So with that, I wanted to leave you with something a little bit more uplifting uh, than 2525 from yesterday. And tomorrow we'll have a song that's more typical of what you expect from you know old classic rock or something like that or something really meaningful. But today, I just want to leave you with something really inspiring and really beautiful and expose you to the knowledge that something like an electric harp 
even exists. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with more with with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. 